So this morning I want to talk to you just very quickly about the strategic environment. I think uh, most of you would be aware about the key trends in, of strategic change that we're seeing at the moment, whether it's geopolitics, technology, demographics or climate change. But I really want to focus on uh, trends in warfare, which really is the problem and opportunities statement, and then what might we do as an institution to get at some of these problems or to um, exploit some of the opportunities of uh, future warfare and competition. So very briefly on the strategic environment, you know, building an effective 21st century military institution is at heart founded on an understanding of the strategic environment. If you don't understand the key drivers, how they interact, how it impacts on nations, how it impacts on multinational uh, relationships, how it impacts on communities and societies, it's then very difficult to establish, build, evolve, adapt uh, and improve military organisations. I think the, the two key drivers uh, in the international system are clearly the United States and China. Um, we've seen them both issue uh, national defence strategies over the last couple of years. Uh, this one here, 2018, I note was from the previous United States administration. There was a, an update uh, issued earlier this year, but not a formal national defence strategy as of yet. The Chinese also issued uh, a white paper uh, in the last 18 months or so. And if you have a look at quotes from both these documents, both of them focus on how there is a significant level of change in the international order and the international environment. Um, it's one of the areas where both documents are in violent agreement. And of course, 1 July last year, our Prime Minister launched the Defence Strategic Update and the new force structure plan over at the Australian Defence Force Academy. Um, I would encourage you to read the documents, but also read the Prime Minister's speech. There's a certain amount of complementarity there uh, that I think is worthy of your attention. Um, and, and frankly, if you're after a strategic narrative, the Prime Minister's speech there um, would be it. That's what I would be looking at. But as he said in that speech, we're facing reality that we moved into a new and less benign strategic area. So what does that mean for military institutions? What's that mean for how we're going to have to think about um, the things we continue and think about the things we need to change doing. I'm going to propose to you that there are seven trends in 21st century war and competition and then I'll, I'll go through what I think we might be able to do to uh, address these. So the first trend is I think we need to have a different appreciation of time and there's a couple of reasons for this. Firstly, uh, with the advent of widespread application of AI and it's, it's proliferating rapidly in a range of different societal undertakings, the speed at which, which decisions can be made uh, is unprecedented. Now if you put on top of that things like hypersonic weapons, uh, these two technologies will compress command and control change. They will compress the hierarchical strata on which single service and joint organisations have been constructed for the last hundred years. I don't think doctrinally, conceptually or even practically we've really come to grips what that really means. So we really need to have a different appreciation of time. Now compounding that problem at the other end of the spectrum from microseconds we also need to be thinking in decades. The strategic competition we, in, we are in right now and being no doubt we are part of 
the global system and the strategic competition that's occurring uh, will take place over decades. Now that is a profound challenge for governments and societies. How do we, as a military, think about a strategic competition that takes place over decades rather than year in, year out or annual updates for IOPs and things like that? The second trend is the 21st century is going to feature a battle of signatures. As you know, in your units, you will have done some form of signature measurement, signature management, whether it's wearing camouflage clean, uh, camouflaging a vehicle, um, OPSEC, um, communication security, those kind of things. So individual platforms, individual people all possess signatures, but so do larger organisations, whether it's a combat team, a battle group, a brigade group, they all have certain signatures that can be measured, uh, but they can also be managed. Um, and I think that's going to be a really important part of 21st century um, warfare is we need to better understand all the various signatures that emerge from joint organisations and not just in the battle space. What are the signatures that a joint organisation generates in the lead up to a deployment? Okay? What are the signatures that a strategic planning organisation might generate uh, and be measured and managed. So I think signature management um, previously for us has largely been in the battle space and tactical. We still need to do that, but we need to elevate our thinking up to the more strategic level when it comes to signature. The third trend is we are in a new era of mass. I think TX Hammer's um, recent paper on warfare in the 21st century where he talks about um, war being uh, a question of the few and exquisite versus small, smart and many is a, is a really nice summary of it. Now it's obviously more complex than that and TX understands that too, but we are in a new era of mass. Will we see massed armoured vehicles rolling through the Fulda Gap uh, in any future conflict? Well, I think that's uh, not impossible, but probably less likely. Uh, will we see massed autonomous systems? Will we see mass use of rockets and rocket interceptors like we saw recently in Israel? And will we see the mass use of influence and information campaigns? Well, I think the answer to all those is yes. How do we think through the implications of that for force structures? And are combat brigades really structured, equipped both physically and intellectually for the kind of environment that uh, this new era mess might lead to? In 1999, two Chinese colonels published the book Unrestricted Warfare. I'd hope uh, our participants have at least had a chance to familiarise themselves with this book. Uh, essentially, that book was a plan uh, and just about everything in it has been done by the PLA in the last 20 years. I think when it first came out, uh, a lot of people were overly absorbed by terms like assassin's mace and these kind of cool faddish terms. The reality is what they were talking about was a deeper level of integration, not just within military organisations, but between military and society in future competition and future warfare. Uh, if you have a look at the Chinese civil military fusion strategy, that's just another example of how they were thinking. We need to be better at this. Um, I think as a joint organisation, Talisman Sabre and these kind of activities are wonderful exemplars of how far we have come as a joint organisation. Um, there are certainly examples of better interagency collaboration, 
but we do need to more deeply integrate between different organisations and different nations. Because at the end of the day, it is the gaps in organisations and the gaps between uh, organisations that our adversaries will exploit. And our, indeed, uh, PLA has a concept of uh, systemic destruction which focuses on institutional gaps. Uh, if you've read any of my stuff before, you, you know I'm a, an advocate of this, uh, but we are going to see human machine teaming at every level of our endeavour. Whether it's uh, a digger in the field or whether it's a policy maker in Canberra, there will be some form of human machine teaming. That may be robotic systems, it may be different algorithms to support logistics training, it might be different um, AI uh, war games to support war gaming and policy development. Uh, we are going to see this at every single level of war. Now there's a whole lot of implications to that and it's not just about SOPs, tactics or even future war fighting concepts. The training and education elements of this will be quite profound and we've only really just started the journey on that. Um, as I've put on this slide here, you know, at the moment it's about 100 to 1, 100 humans per uh, autonomous system across the ADF. What happens when that ratio flips? The second last trend is this evolving fight for influence. There's been some fabulous uh, books and reports published over the last couple of years on this and I'd recommend to you Tom Ridd's examination of Russian uh, information, disinformation operations over the last century as well as um, the Ross Babbage publication that I've put on there as well. To be quite frank, there is nothing new in humans and in military organisations conducting influence operations. Uh, we've always sought to influence the minds of our adversaries um, and you know old Napoleon's morals of physical is three to one was, was part of that calculus. What's changed is the technologies that allow us to proliferate and target and be more discriminant in those influence operations in a way that is quite unprecedented and we've seen examples of it in both the military and societal um, environments over the last five or six years or so. Cambridge Analytica was just one. Um, and we're going to see more of it. But I would also caution everyone when it comes to influence operations. They are not the be all and end all. You do not win anything with just influence. It is part of an overall integrated approach to competing and winning. And we should never ever forget that as military professionals, one of the best way to influence an adversary is through violence and killing. A final trend, and this is probably a more strategic uh, national level trend, but I think over the last couple of years it's become quite obvious, is there is a greater reliance on sovereign resilience. Now there's been some terrific work over the last couple of years, whether they've been industry plans or some of the mobilisation uh, writings from people like Dr Peter Layton and I would commend them to you. But as a nation, uh, we are going to have to develop uh, internal sources of supply for things that we probably didn't imagine even five years ago. Uh, eventually, this is probably going to sort itself into three levels, I think, of supply. Those things that we will only uh, procure from Australian sources. Uh, another level might be those things we will only procure from trusted allies 
and partners, and in the third level, we, those things we can procure anywhere. I don't, I don't know that we've formalised it like that, but that's how I kind of conceive of the various levels of sovereign resilience in the 21st century, particularly for a middle power like Australia, which will never be able to produce every single item, military or otherwise, uh, that its society or its government requires. All right, well, there's a lot of challenges in here and there's quite a few opportunities, but we need to remember that our adversaries and our competitors are also facing similar challenges to we are, to what we are. Um, you know, uh, for a lot of people, these are quite bewildering changes, whether it's in our society or when it, whether it's in our military institution. We are not going through this alone. Every human on the planet is going through this in some form. That alone is an opportunity for us if we can move quickly and think quickly. So the second part of my presentation really is all about how do we respond? And I'm proposing that uh, for an organisation, particularly like ours, to generate a military advantage in the 21st century, there's five key areas that we need to focus on. I'll, I'll talk through each of these in turn very quickly. Um, and uh, very happy if someone, I know we're not doing Q&A after this, but if someone wants to email me with any questions, I'm happy to engage with them. So I think, you know, the, uh, the equation for 21st century military effectiveness really is about um, new ideas, new and evolved organisations, new measures of military effectiveness, um, an adaptive approach and people with an intellectual edge. So we need new ideas. I mean, there's a lot of current ideas that might be useful, but we are seeing war transform and we need to conceive how we enter it, uh, how we behave in it and how we exit it differently than what we have in the past. I would propose that the competition for ideas is well advanced and we are not in the lead. We are seeing some really interesting work uh, and you can read this online from um, you know, Chinese military reviews, Russian professional journals. They take the development of new military ideas far more seriously than I propose we do in this country or, or in many other places. Um, and they are continuing to look at different and new ideas. Um, we need to keep track of them, but we need to compete and get ahead where we can. Um, there's a wonderful site run by um, uh, the US military which looks at foreign military doctrine and it does detailed studies of Russian and Chinese doctrine, uh, strategy, warfighting approaches. I commend it to you. It is well worth reading into both these countries. Not just as competitors, but there are good ideas in these things. We shouldn't just be turning to friendly countries for good ideas. So I propose to you, what is the ADF's joint theory of victory. These are some things that we might want to think about. Okay, so the second part of the equation is that we need new and evolved organisations. You know, I've put in there autonomous systems as a focal point, but there's a whole range of other technologies that are going to impact on our organisations. With the birth of flight in the early 1900s, that eventually led to entirely new military institutions. Uh, throughout the 1910s and the 1920s and into the 1940s. Are there other technologies, are there other approaches that might lead us down the same pathway? 
Now there are some that propose space force or other things like that. I don't have a strong view on that either way. But I think some of these new technologies, some of these new ways of thinking, may actions, and that's going to be profoundly challenging to the big three traditional domain services. Third part of the equation is we need 21st century definitions of military effectiveness. So what is military effectiveness? It's how do we define at different levels, particularly the tactical, operational and strategic, how might a military organisation organise, prepare itself, fight and exit a war successfully? Quite a few really good uh, publications examine this, particularly from a late 20th century perspective, but uh, Murray and Millett's work is the standard, uh, but also Brooks and Stanley's 2007 work updates it, where it talks about military effectiveness. I would propose to you, uh, and my definition of it in the 21st century, is that it's the process by which military forces convert resources into the capacity to influence and fight for coherent strategic effect within an integrated national approach. We need revised and improved measures of effectiveness at each of these levels. The fourth part of the equation is we need to evolve how we think about adaptation. Now in 2008, the Australian Army went through the Adaptive Army um, program. I was part of that, so I'm a little bit biased, but that was all about taking Army from a functional approach to a temporal approach in its learning. Um, and was focused on tactical adaptation, um, operational adaptation and strategic adaptation and to do that very deliberately. Some parts of that were successful, uh, some parts maybe not so much. Forces Command was one of the things that emerged out of that, by the way. Um, we need to reinvigorate our understanding of adaptation for both individuals and for institutions and to be able to speed up how quickly we can change and generate advantage because every advantage we generate in the 21st century is going to be far more transitory. And part of that is having a more enlightened approach to failure and learning. We need to better define what is acceptable failure. There is no such thing in a military organisation as zero tolerance. We just professionally cannot have that approach. Failure is an integral part of learning for individuals and organisations, but we need to better define and nurture that kind of culture. Uh, we have not always been good at that. Um, and that will give us a better foundation for the adaptive approach in the 21st century. Uh, there's a few books I've listed there you might like to read, even just one or two of them would be useful. But the other part of adaptation in an institution is we should be messing with the enemy's approach to adaptation. I call this counter-adaptation, but it's not just about how we adapt, we must interfere with, we must corrupt an adversary's approach to adaptation. Finally, and, and this is the one you'd expect me to talk about, but you know, the intellectual edge is the foundation of all things. Uh, it is the brains of humans that come up with new technologies. It's the brains of humans that come up with how we use those technologies and how we go to war, how we pursue wars and how we exit wars. Uh, this quote here by Dima Adamski, uh, a, a wonderful Israeli scholar, um, who's written a couple of fabulous books on military culture and innovation. This one in particular I, I commend to you. Now, he talks about a military organisation needing to figure out the hardware, but also the software of war. And this 
part of the equation really is about the software. I've written before about uh, generating the intellectual edge. There's an individual part, which is our, you know, obviously our education and, and large parts of our military training um, enterprise. But there's also an institutional intellectual edge. How do our organisations, combat teams, brigades, uh, strategic planning organisations, joint plans organisations develop some form of intellectual edge? So I'd propose that there's a whole range of things that we're either doing or will need to do to get at this. Uh, you know, let's have a strategy. You know, what's our vision for this? Now we have a strategy for future learning in the 21st century. Um, that is that is useful, but it's it's not complete. Uh, we need to have a more continuous learning approach. We have to get away from a 20th century episodic approach, where you go do a course every few years. The world is moving too quick for doing a course every few years. We need a different, more continuous approach. We also need to ensure learning is more accessible. And when I say accessible, I'm not just talking about online courses. I'm talking about accessible across all ranks. And I'm talking about accessible whether you're on operations or at home. So accessibility is a really important principle. Strategic engagement and collaboration with like military organisations, but also universities and industry is an important part of this. And there's a whole range of other elements of how we get at building this intellectual edge in the 21st century. But one of the fundamental elements is we need to increase, increase the technological literacy of our entire organisation. Um, being able to operate your particular piece of equipment is not technological literacy. Understanding new technologies and how they fit into how we do business is. And uh, that's one area that we really need to look at. I mean, we've started a whole bunch of new courses on advanced technologies here at the college. But I think as an enterprise, there's more to be done. And further down the track, um, you know, the use of autonomous systems and AI, we're going to have to integrate that fully into our training and education system. We're doing some work on that, but uh, there is a long way to go. And I'd finish my equation by saying that through it all, those five bits, we need to still adhere to the values of our society and to our organisation. This isn't discretionary, okay? We represent our country and we represent our values. Uh, no matter how good the technologies are and how uh, vital the endeavour, we still should represent those values. So in conclusion, um, war is transforming. What I put in there, again, this isn't the first time we've been through something like this. There are lots of lessons from history that we can learn about how military organisations can change, adapt, improve and win in a time of significant societal and technological change. The period between 1890 and 1914 is a wonderful case study. And if you read books like The Vertigo Years, you will see in there descriptions of people feeling bewildered by the rate of technological change. Humans have been through these kinds of eras before and we can use that to learn this time. But it's hard, right? It's really hard. Um, and unfortunately, as we know in our own army, uh, change often comes not because of success, but because of failure. Battle of Fromel was our first battle on the Western Front after Gallipoli. 5,500 Australian soldiers killed or wounded in one night. Just think about that. 5,500 Australian soldiers killed or wounded 
in one night. But that provided the drive and the foundation for our army on the Western Front to develop a whole range of new ways of working with each other in combined arms, which all came together at the Battle of Hamel and then in an even bigger way with the First Corps uh, during the battles of Amiens in August 1918. Okay? But there's a burden of proof here. Um, and it's very difficult to get organisations to change that have done things and succeeded at them in the past. But at the end of the day, losing is harder than changing. This is a picture uh, from 1870 with the French ruler surrendering to the Germans at Sedan. There's a wonderful book by the late Sir Michael Howard that looks at the decades that led up to the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-1871. And this summary that I put on the slide there is a really good way of thinking about the challenge ahead. The social and economic developments of the past 50 years have brought about a military as well as an industrial revolution. The Prussians had kept abreast of it and France had not. Therein lay the basic cause of a defeat. Now I know about you, but in this equation, I'd rather be the Prussians and not the French. Uh, that concludes my presentation. Uh, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk today. Uh, it's really nice to be back associated with the COVE again, um, and I wish you all well for the remainder of the conference. Thank you.